weeks ago. Um, but it's good to be back with you all. And uh, I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. And as you're turning there, we would like to extend to all of our visitors a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Aaron mentioned, and perhaps you missed the announcement, we do have our fellowship meal this afternoon in between services. And you're more than welcome and encouraged to please stick around so that we can get to know you and fellowship together and join us as well for our afternoon service. John chapter 3, we're going to focus this morning on verses 22 through 29. But for the sake of getting the whole picture in front of us, I'd like us to read from verse 22 through the end of the chapter in verse 36. And so let us hear with attentive and sober hearts the Word of God in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anan near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. If you would, bow your heads with me and let's unite our hearts as we ask God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious and good Father, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word, that we possess it in our language, that You have given us and entrusted to us the precious truths of the Gospel, the words of eternal life that saves our souls from the eternal wrath of God. Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for how practical and instructive it is for us as we see John the Baptist's humility 
as he eagerly deflects any praise that would be given to him and instead redirects it to Christ who is preeminent in all things. Father, we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, create in us more and more these Christian graces. That we would learn and be instructed by John's example. That we are to be consumed with the glory of Christ and not our own glory. Not our own platform. That we exist. That You have made us new creations so that Christ would increase and that we would decrease. Father, we confess that we are a still sinful people and we still have hearts that battle with and are tempted with self-promotion, self-exaltation. We are those who are tempted to love flattery. We pray, Father, that more and more You would help us to put to death the old man that we, like John, like the apostles, would be consumed with the glory of Christ, that we would be able to say, whether by life or by death, if Christ be magnified, it is enough. We pray, Father, that You would teach us what it is to truly believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray for Your Spirit to come and illumine this text to our hearts, to instruct our minds, And not only that, to transform our hearts and our wills and our hands and our feet. That we would not only grow in knowledge, but we would grow in grace. That we would grow in holy affections. That Your Spirit would continue to pour out within us greater measures of grace by which we are conformed to the image of Christ. Father, help us. We are a needy people. And You are so gracious to us and so patient with us. We pray that we would be edified and built up in our most holy faith. And Father, we also pray for any who are here who are outside of Christ and not believing the Gospel. We know from Your Word that these spiritual things are as foolishness to them. And so we pray for Your Spirit who made us alive when we were dead to be merciful to them and make them alive spiritually. Where there is hardness of heart, Father, we pray that You would bring soft, that you would soften them. Where there is willful blindness and ignorance, we pray that You would give them a heart of humility that delights in the light and in the truth rather than hides and suppresses the truth. Father, You alone can do this. With God, all things are possible. We pray that You'd be pleased for Your glory to do it this morning even. We pray that You'd be our help, that You'd draw near to us and glorify Your name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to, at the beginning, at the front end, explain kind of the big picture idea of what's going on in this text. Um, verses 22 through 36 is a bit of a lengthier passage than I normally deal with, and I know I'm, I'm only dealing with part of it this morning. But nonetheless, with longer passages, it can be easy to kind of lose sight of what the main purpose is. The main focus of verses 22 through 36 is the testimony that John the Baptist gives concerning Christ, contrasting his own person and ministry with the ministry and person of Christ. And John testifying to his own disciples 
the superiority and supremacy of Christ in all things. Okay, now that testimony takes place beginning at verse 27 through verse 36. And the verses that lead up to that, verses 22 through 26, simply set the stage to give us the context for what led to John giving that testimony. And so verses 22 through 26 explain to us that there is this season of overlap when both Jesus and John are baptizing and a dispute arises between some of John the Baptist's disciples and some of the Jews, which leads John's disciples to get a bit jealous and a bit territorial and because they find out that Jesus' ministry is growing as John's is diminishing. And they go back to John thinking that he should be concerned about that. Like Jesus is stealing the show from John. And that is what sets the stage for John declaring that not only is he not bothered by what is happening, he rejoices in it. His joy is fulfilled in what is taking place. Because that literally is the purpose of his entire ministry, that Christ might be revealed to Israel. And so, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at those events that set the stage for John's testimony, and then we'll consider together just the beginning of John's testimony of Christ And then, Lord willing, we'll pick up next week and finish John's testimony to Christ. So, with that, let's begin with our exposition this morning. And it's at this point I especially would encourage you, if you have your Bible, to please have it open to John chapter 3 so that you can follow along in the text for yourself and see what God is teaching us in this passage. Exposition. Let's begin at verse 22. Verse 22 says, After these things... That's another time marker... And that refers to after Jesus' time in Jerusalem for the Passover, after His discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus and His disciples came into the land of Judea, and there He remained with them and baptized. So Jesus departs from the city. He goes out into the uh, countryside where they are baptizing. Now, if you glance down at chapter 4, verse 2, John tells us that it wasn't actually Jesus Himself baptizing, but it was His disciples baptizing on His behalf. But the main point we're supposed to get here is that Jesus now has His own baptism ministry going on in Judea. And then, verse 23, now John was also baptizing near, uh, in Anan near Salem. Which, by the way, are two places that we don't have mentioned anywhere else. And so Matthew Henry said, therefore, all the learned are all together at a loss where to find them. We, we don't know where this location is. But what we do know and what we learn is that John the Baptist didn't feel compelled to stay in just one place, but rather he moved from place to place, making his message known. He was a preacher of repentance and to baptize And naturally, as he traveled, he chose places that would be suited to his task. Notice the text says, because there was much water there. Right? That makes sense. To baptize, you need water. Now, just just a note here, a, a small excursus. That phrase, much water, could be taken a couple ways. Some take that word much, much water, in the sense of wherever John was baptizing was a substantial of water. 
So, for instance, sometimes Baptists, which you know I'm a Baptist, but sometimes Baptists will point to this text as support for immersion. And the argument goes like this. You don't need much water for sprinkling, but you do need much water if you're going to submerge someone. But, and I'm going to criticize my own Baptist brothers who make that argument, even though I'm a Baptist, to be fair to the text, which is my job, it's probably better translated, there were many waters there. Because in fact, the noun for water in Greek here is plural. It's waters. And so, while I obviously as a Baptist do believe that in the New Testament, baptism was by immersion, and I think that can be shown from other texts, I don't think that that's the point John was making here. Rather, John's point is simply to say that John the Baptist was in a place where there were many bodies of water available for those who needed to be baptized. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, why even go off on that? Mostly because it's a teaching opportunity. Okay? I, I mention that mostly for this reason. In our attempt to defend our beliefs, we've got to be sure that we are not abusing texts and making them say something that they don't actually say simply because that would conveniently support our position. Right? Um, our beliefs need to be properly derived from the text, not improperly. So, if nothing else, at least now this morning, you know the proof text not to go to to prove immersion. Okay? So, getting, getting back into the, the flow of the text, Jesus is baptizing in Judea. John is baptizing in Anan. Picking up in the middle of verse 23, it says, And they, that is the people, came and were baptized. Verse 24, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, that's a clarifying point that John the Gospel writer adds in here to fill in what was ambiguous in the synoptic Gospels. I've mentioned a few times that John's Gospel kind of purposely fills in some of the gaps of things that were missing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those other Gospels don't mention anything about Jesus baptizing through His disciples. And so John here is filling in that chronology for us, telling us that before John the Baptist had been thrown into prison, there was this overlapping season in which Jesus also baptized through His disciples. And that's what sets the stage for this, context, uh, this contest, which is brought out and introduced in verse 25. Not that Jesus and John viewed it as a contest, but these competitive disciples of John seemed to. Verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, just a note, there is a small variant here. You might have noticed, if you've got the ESV, it says that this dispute was between John's disciples and a Jew, singular. If you've got the New King James, it says the Jews, plural. It's literally the difference of one letter in Greek. Um, doesn't make any significant difference to the meaning of the text. Um, but the point is, a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification about cleansing. And by the way, by the fact that John mentions... John, it gets confusing when John's the Gospel writer and we're talking about John the Baptist. Notice that John the Gospel writer mentions the disciples of John the Baptist first. 
He says a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews, not the other way around, which seems to indicate that John's disciples were the aggressors in this dispute, that they were the ones who started it and that they were the ones who were bested in it. Matthew Henry says this, he says, it's a sign that they were novices who had more zeal than discretion The truths, and listen to this, this is classic Matthew Henry, the truths of God have often suffered by the rashness of those that have undertaken to defend them before they were able to do so. Okay? So I don't know who's on Facebook who needs to hear that, but let's let's learn a lesson from Matthew Henry. What we do know is that at the end of this, the end result of this dispute is that it leads John the Baptist's disciples to return to John, and they say to him, verse 26, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now think about it. What transpired in that dispute to make them bring that concern to John? I mean, how do you go from a dispute about purification... And then suddenly the concern is about how Jesus is baptizing and everyone is going to Him. Well, obviously John doesn't give us the dialogue or we wouldn't be asking the question. And it's only speculation at one level, but we can kind of read between the lines of what happened. (coughs) It seems very plausible that these zealous disciples, as disciples often are, but perhaps lacking discernment, These disciples picked a fight with these Jews and in all their zeal, and they were defending John's purification of baptism over and against the purification rituals the Jews practiced, which they inherited from the traditions of their elders. You're familiar with those kinds of purification things from the other Gospels of hand washing and the washing of mats and beds and cups and all sorts of things. And probably John's disciples were saying something along the lines of, you guys give careful attention to purification that isn't even commanded by God, all the while you reject God's actual appointed purification in the baptism of John. But it seems that these Jews raised an objection to them that they perhaps weren't ready for. And I'll I'll play the part of the, the Jews retorting. I think they might have said something like this. If John's baptism is so special, and if it is indeed the ordinance of God, then why do we already have another baptizer? Or do you not know that Jesus is baptizing? It seems that John has set a dangerous precedent that now every teacher in Israel is going to start their own baptism, just like Jesus has done. And perhaps they went even further and argued something like, If John's baptism is so great, why are even more people now going to Jesus to be baptized? Does that not imply that there's something inferior to the baptism of John? Now, in any case, what sticks in these disciples' minds is that concern that Jesus' popularity is growing and all are beginning to go to Him. And so they go to John to voice their complaint. And that's what they're doing. They're essentially trying to draw John into their concern. And they're basically asking John, John, are you okay with this? Are you going to allow this? 
that one whom you baptized is now taking upon himself to baptize and he's infringing on your work. And add to that, John, those that used to follow us are now flocking to him. That is what brings John's response. And we'll look just at the beginning of it this morning. They bring this complaint to John, but John refuses to share in their resentment. Okay? This transition that is happening, the passing of the baton from John the Baptist to Jesus, is not something John resented or feared, but it is what he longed for and waited for. In fact, this is a sign to John that he has been successful in his ministry. And so John, excuse me, John checks his friends for their complaint. This whole testimony that he gives is actually a rebuke to them. And by the way, Christian, John here is a model for every Christian to emulate and every minister of the gospel, acknowledging that we are subservient to Christ in every way conceivable and that we exist not to be magnified but to magnify Christ. There are at least two, but there are two major ways the temptation of self-exaltation can try to seduce us. Okay? And John faced both and he resisted both. The first way the temptation to self-exaltation seeks to seduce us is when others diminish our importance. Right? Just like the religious leaders tried to do to John in chapter 1. Right? You remember their interrogation in which they basically say to him, if, if, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or the prophet or Elijah? They're basically asking him, who are you? And we are, when that happens and people seek to diminish our importance, we are tempted to do what? To defend and to make known our importance. John refused in chapter 1. But the second way, and it's the way that John is facing here, is when not enemies, but our friends want to make us out to be more than we are. It is, it is very easy for this sinful heart that still craves self-exaltation to just let flattery stand and to, not, and to not resist its influence. But John models here that the more others seek to exalt us and seek to elevate us, even our friends, the more we need to make an effort to abase ourselves, remembering what we are and redirecting their flattery to Christ. So let's consider briefly his response. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. That's an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. God is the one who raises up men, and God is the one who brings other men down. God is the one who distributes His graces and His ministries as He sees fit. And as John words it here, what a man receives from heaven, he must remember that it has been given to him. And what God gives, he is free to take away. Matthew Henry again says, John reminds his disciples that Jesus would not thus have excelled him except he had received it from heaven. For as a man and mediator, he received gifts, and if God gave Christ the Spirit without measure, Shall they begrudge it? 
John's ministry, with all of its success, was the result of heaven's gifting. He didn't appoint himself to that role. He didn't make himself the forerunner of the the Messiah. God gave him that role. And if his ministry is now coming to its appointed end, then God's will be done. And indeed, not only God's will be done, God be praised. And John then reminds his disciples that he's already told them this. He says, verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. These disciples should have known better. Even they said in their first comment to John, this is the one of whom you you spoke of. John is saying to them, do you not remember that one note that I have been uh, singing my entire public ministry? Did I not say again and again that he who comes after me is greater than I? That I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And that he who comes after me is to be preferred before me because he was before me. And so why on earth would you set him up to be my rival? Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Right? Is it any surprise that the bride is flocking to Christ instead of John? Christ is the bridegroom. John is simply a friend of the bridegroom. And John is clearly delineating his relation to Christ and his relation to redemption and salvation. And he's saying to them, redemption revolves not around John, but around Christ. Just like Paul would have to rebuke the Corinthians later on because of their making too much of certain men and leaders. And he asks them, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? John is saying to them, eternity will ring with the praises of the Lord Jesus and none else. And John, in fact, will be on the front lines joining in on those praises of the Lord Jesus. He finishes out verse 29, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. The wedding between Christ and his people, which had been unfolding in the Old Testament for centuries, God bringing about the promised Messiah has finally come. The bridegroom is here, and John says he rejoices to hear his voice. John rejoices to hear the glad tidings that Christ brings and to see in his day the arrival of the consolation of Israel. That at last, that promised seed of the woman promised in the garden has come to crush Satan's head through his life and death and resurrection. And John says, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. Completed. John's joy is not diminished. He's not sour. His joy is fulfilled. His ministry has run its course, and though it will end in his own imprisonment and martyrdom, he rejoices that the goal of his ministry has come to pass, that Christ has been revealed to Israel. We'll pause there for our exposition this morning. We'll pick up there in verse 30, Lord willing, next week. Let's move into our second section this morning. Usually when I preach, I have three sections, exposition, doctrine, and then application. I've gone a bit long 
um, in my exposition, and so I want to con combine doctrine and application. Okay, so I have, I have three things that I want us to open up together from this text. Three things that instruct us doctrinally and apply to us practically. I'll give them to you uh, uh, as we go. The first one is this, and if it's helpful to take notes, some of these can get a bit lengthy. I try to keep them short, but sometimes it's difficult. Number one is this, doctrine and application. We should not resent, but instead rejoice when others prosper in the gospel work. Okay? We should not resent, but instead rejoice when others prosper in the gospel work. We, we have both here in this text a negative example with John's disciples. They are envying and resenting Christ's increase. And we have a positive example in John who is rejoicing in Christ's increase. And their brother and sister is a lesson there for every Christian and every church and every ministry to learn. That wherever we see the kingdom of God expanding and the true church flourishing and Christ's name being honored, whether it be by our hands or by the hands of others, we should rejoice and give thanks to God. And that is easier said than practiced. Because truth be told, Christians still fight that indwelling sin of pride and jealousy and self-exaltation. Even the apostles were not immune to this by any means. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. This, the, John the Gospel writer, this very apostle, I imagine said it somewhat smugly, and he says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because they did not follow us. And Jesus says in verse 38, do not forbid him, for one who works a miracle in my name cannot soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. How easy it is to forget that all true Christians... And all true churches are on the same side. Right? It's not about building our little kingdom in brand based on personality. It's about building Christ's kingdom on the truth of the Word of God. I mean, even if someone doesn't follow with us, and they're not in our circle, and maybe even on some issues they don't cross their T's and dot their I's exactly the same we do. If God is pleased to enlarge their ministry and diminish our ministry, we should with humility rejoice in the work of God. Because God has one kingdom. Right? Paul said to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. And later on, Paul says to the same Corinthians, what is Paul and what is Apollos but servants through whom you believed? Christian, we need to remember that the point of our existence is to know Christ and to labor to make Him known to others and to see Christ formed in His people. And here's the thing. Whether God uses me as an instrument to do that or you or another church, our joy should be made full. Indeed, this is one of the ways God humbles us by reminding us that we are expendable. 
And the church and the kingdom does not ride on the backs of any one of us. Right? So for example, maybe you're evangelizing someone for months or years and you've poured yourself into them. You've sacrificed for them. You've spent time with them. You've been there with them. And they're just not buying this, the, this Christian business. Right? Just for whatever reason, just not convinced by you. And you lose contact for a while. And six months later, they call you and they tell you that they met another Christian who really helped them and that now they've become a Christian. If we're honest, what's most of our gut reaction? <laughs> what was wrong with me? <laughs> don't, don't I get credit? I mean, especially it's, it's wonderful when they say they just said things so much better than you said them. <laughs> Which that, might, that actually might be a reason. But the gut reaction is, I put so much work into this. Why don't I get to see the payoff? Why didn't they join my church? And then to even add insult to injury, you find out that the person the Lord used to convert them was not even reformed. <laughs> and you think, why, Lord? I mean, an Arminian, I'm a, I'm a good reformed Baptist. That grumbling attitude and jealous attitude is the wrong attitude. A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. God determines the fruitfulness of your ministry. He knows, he knows every single person that will and will not be converted under your evangelism, your ministry, and He knows exactly who will be converted under someone else's ministry. The Spirit is like the wind, not only in regeneration, but in the sense that He dispenses His gifts and His graces as He sees fit. And in fact, maybe God did that precisely to reveal your pride and show you that you're not the head of the church, Christ is, and you're not the only one He can use to glorify Himself. I think of Jonathan Edwards, who labored in his congregation for years. Plenty of hardships, plenty of fights from his own members, plenty of mistreatment. And what did he do? He faithfully pastored. He prayed for revival. He faithfully preached to his little congregation with little fruit. And guess what? He invites George Whitfield into his pulpit to preach. And guess what happens? George Whitfield preaches and revival breaks out. Now, Edwards was holier than me. But I think many pastors and preachers would struggling with that. Would struggle with that. Right? Here I am. And I, Lord, I've been laboring in this hard context and you bring a traveling Anglican itinerant preacher to bring revival. That's the attitude of those in the parable of the vineyard, isn't it? You remember the parable of the vineyard? What did those do who had worked the whole day in the vineyard what did they do when they saw at the end of the day those who only worked an hour received the same pay they received? They resented the freedom of the vineyard owner to dispense his gifts as he sees fit. That kind of competitive attitude needs to be repented of. God is sovereign in dispensing the salvation and He's sovereign in determining the fruitfulness and the extent and impact of our ministry. And we should not begrudge it when He more lavishly pours out on others, grace that He doesn't give to us. Because here's the point. The point of our lives is Christ's glory, not our own. Paul had learned that so deeply, you remember from Philippians, that in chapter 1, 
He can even rejoice when people are preaching Christ and they're doing it out of the motive to get revenge against Paul. And yet he says, whether with good motives or bad motives, what? I rejoice because Christ is magnified. Matthew Henry says, aiming at the monopoly of honor and respect, that is, wanting to have the monopoly over honor and respect, has been in the ages, or excuse me, has been in all ages the bane of the church and the shame of its members and ministers, as is also a vying of interests and jealousy and rivalry and competition. That brings us to our second doctrine slash application. Number two, we learn from this passage to find contentment with our station in life and to magnify Christ wherever He places us. We learn from this passage to find contentment with our station in life and to magnify Christ wherever He places us. Think about John the Baptist. John knew from the very beginning of his ministry that he was not destined for greatness. It's not like he didn't know that. He knew he was destined to fade out. Literally, John's divine, the divine purpose for John's life was one of planned obsoleteness, for John to become obsolete. But here's the thing. That did not cause him to grumble at the providence of God, and it didn't cause him to lack zeal in his devotion to his task. Rather, he received God's ordained purpose for his life and he sought to serve as faithfully as he could in it, which he did. And he found joy and contentment not in seeking a station above the one allotted to him, but in receiving and doing the will of God. And Christian, we would do well to do the same. We need to crucify a love for greatness. At least in terms as the world defines greatness. We need to crucify a love for the praise of man. And we need to instead cultivate a love for the praise that comes from God. The praise that the believer will hear as he enters glory. Well done, good and faithful, what? Servant. What does a servant do? A servant fulfills the role his master gives him. Right? A good servant doesn't seek to go outside of that. Doesn't seek to say, no, 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 I don't think you know how to run this place. I'm going to do this instead. A servant doesn't seek great things for himself. He's content to fill but a small space if that be the will of his master. And in this sense, Christian, there is in the kingdom of Christ no such thing as an unessential role. Every station, every calling, every role is sacred when it is done at the command of Christ. We, we don't often, too often enough, I guess, we don't often enough think that way. We usually think in terms of a hierarchy of more or less important callings. And usually the way we rate those is the ones at the top are usually the ones that are what? They're public, they're seen by all, they're glamorous, they're the ones that are remembered and books are written about them, biographies. And then towards the bottom, the roles that we don't think of as very essential are the ones that are just ordinary, behind the scenes, and not very glamorous at all. Think about John's life. John the Baptist's role was to live in obscurity, 
to be ridiculed by most, to preach Christ to an apostate nation, to baptize, and to die as a martyr and be forgotten. In his day, his life was not, would not have been seen as glamorous. Not to mention the whole list of prophets that came before him. But you know who did honor John? God. Christ says of John the Baptist that among those born of woman, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Why did, why did he say that? Because John was faithful to the task and the role that he was entrusted with. Right? So apply, let's apply that to us. Most of us, let's be honest, probably all of us, will never be a Spurgeon or a Whitfield, or a Luther, or a Calvin. The vast majority of Christians will be those ordinary Christians who prayed for the Spurgeons. Or maybe from your evangelism, a Spurgeon will be converted. Or maybe from your great-grandchild, a Spurgeon will get converted because of the faithful Christian legacy you passed down to them. Those, those things are in God's hands, and who gives from heaven as He pleases. But the point is this. Our role is not unimportant just because we weren't the person who was in the spotlight. Right? God knows your works. God knows your station in life that He has given to you. And God calls us to give an account for discharging the ministry He has given us, not for the one He hasn't given to us. So let me apply that to a couple of specific groups. First of all, moms. Spurgeon said, I believe he said it in the context of talking about his wife. He said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play second fiddle well. And you know, when there's two fiddles, second fiddle is not the one in the spotlight. Okay? It's the one in the background. Moms. Praying with your children, reading the Bible to your children, instructing them in the Lord, disciplining them, taking care of your home, usually isn't the kind of thing that gets books and movies written about it. Okay? I get that. That does not mean that your role is not monumentally important and storing up an eternal crown. Don't judge the importance of your calling in life by the standards of the world. Because remember, by the standards of the world, John the Baptist lived a pitiable life. And yet Jesus says, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. The world tells you that you are only important and you only serve a a meaningful task if you are front and center and you're some CEO of some massive company and you're just an independent, self-made woman. And that's absolutely contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible actually says your very honor lies in the very behind-the-scenes kinds of things that the world despises. Right? So Titus 2 is one example. Your glory is loving your children, being discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to your own husbands. Those are all things that Paul mentions. To be devoted to good works, creating a home that is hospitable, where the aroma of Christ is present. Those things are honorable and have inherent value because they are the will of God for you. That's your station. And so, find contentment in that and serve with zeal in your station. 
Second group, church members. I put originally ordinary church members, and that sounds bad. What I mean by that is non-office bearers, right? Sometimes Christians think, I mean, particularly men, because the office is for men, that if they're not a deacon or an elder in the church, then their role is just insignificant. But I want to say the same thing to you I said to the moms. Christian, regular church member, who reads your Bible, who studies it, who obeys it, who is faithful in your conduct, faithful to evangelize and share Christ, faithful to pray, faithful to join the church in prayer, faithful in your carrying out your duties to the brothers and the sisters, that in and of itself is an indispensable calling. Yes, it's a behind-the-scenes kind of calling in terms of publicity, but it's indispensable. I hope there is no one here who is under the impression that this church rides on me or on Gary or on John. Just because I'm the guy who stands in the pulpit and I have a more public role, if you will, doesn't mean for a minute that my role is superior to your role. Right? I'm a Christian before I'm anything. And it is, it is merely a role. And in fact, it's a role that's dependent on your role. How, how would I do what I do without your support? What would your pastors be without your prayers for your pastors? Luther, in one of his most discouraging, depressing seasons, wrote to his church and he said, perhaps I'm this way because you have forgotten to pray for me. Spurgeon, when he was asked, why, why is your ministry successful? His reply was, because my people pray. The point I'm making is this. Like John the Baptist, we ought not to envy or idolize positions that God has not ordained for us to play, and we ought not to despise the positions that He has assigned to us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21, in which Paul is talking about the church being one body with many members. Paul says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Then listen to verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Christian, find contentment in the station God has allotted you and serve there with zeal. Last thing as we close. Third Doctrine slash application. I want to close with a warning. Christian, beware of leaders in the church who seek a platform. Beware of leaders in the church who seek a platform. And this is a warning that I'm deriving from the negative example of John's disciples who uh, desired for themselves and for John a greater platform than they were being given. Now, I'm not saying by that that these disciples were definitively those who seek a platform. I know I understand it was a moment of weakness. But the principle is there because there are some men who are definitively driven by a love and a lust for a platform. Now, let me be clear. God does in His providence sometimes give certain leaders significant influence. 
And that's not inherently a bad thing, though it is a great responsibility. I mean, I think of the John MacArthur's of the world and many others. But here's the distinction. God giving a man who isn't seeking it a platform is different from a man being driven by lust for a platform. Think about John everywhere you run into him in the Gospels. The very last thing John sought for his ministry was for people to say, I am of John, and for John to be in the spotlight. He wanted to be regarded as relatively insignificant and a servant, and he wanted Christ to be regarded as preeminent. And brothers and sisters, that ought to be the discernible posture of every pastor in the church. But it is, unfortunately, that is a very different attitude from the attitude of many in the church today. Many leaders, ultimate goal in ministry is the spreading not of Christ's fame, but of their fame. And their ultimate idea and dream of success is to pastor a massive church where they are the face of an empire and they desire to be the big shot that everyone loves and praises and on and on and on. In short, they don't model verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. They model, I must increase. And that is dangerous, Christian, and something that every Christian needs to be on guard against. You don't want Diotrephes pastoring you. You remember Diotrephes from 3 John? Who John says, who loved the preeminence. He loved to be first in all things. Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, his parting exhortations. He warned them that from among their own ranks, from their own eldership, would arise men who would seek to draw the disciples away after them. The first characteristic Paul warns Timothy to keep his eyes out for regarding false teachers is those who are lovers of self. It's the first thing on the list. And he says to Timothy, from such people, turn away. Because they don't serve Christ, they serve themselves. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, men who serve themselves and not Christ, when you give them authority, they abuse those under their charge. Because they will not be your servant for Christ's sake, they will make you serve them for their sake. And so, Christian, I would say in terms of application, look for men who have the attitude of John the Baptist, not his disciples. Look for men who can rejoice in the gospel successes of others and who don't need or crave the spotlight. Look for men who are thankful for other men who are more gifted than them rather than being jealous and threatened by the fact that there might be someone more gifted than them. Look for men like John who are content with their station and the gifting that God has given and who rejoice when Christ increases, whether it be through their hands and labors or through the hands and labors of others. Our time is gone. May God write His Word on our heart and may His Spirit give to us more and more these Christian graces. Let's, let's pray together.
Father, we pray for more of the disposition of John the Baptist. We pray that you would crucify more and more that love of self that still resides in our hearts. We pray that we would crucify our love for the praise of man. That we would not care for our own reputation, but we would care for the reputation of Christ. Father, we pray that You would both exhort us and encourage us. We pray that Your Spirit would apply His Word to each heart individually and uniquely and particularly. As each here has various needs, some of us need stern rebuke. Some of us need to be encouraged in some of these things. Father, You know Your people. We pray Your Spirit would work in all of our hearts. Again, Father, we pray this morning for any who are here in our midst, who are strangers to Christ, who still exalt themselves and have not come to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and to recognize their own inability to save themselves and to recognize that it is only through the cross of Christ that can bring them to God, we pray, humble their hearts and bring them to faith in Christ. Cause them this very day to contemplate these things and we pray that You would bring them to life, that they would flee to the Savior for safety. Open the eyes of the blind and unstop deaf ears. We pray, Father, that You'd bless the remainder of our Lord's Day together. Bless our lunch, our fellowship. And we pray in particular for our afternoon service. We pray that You would edify our hearts. We pray for our brother Thaddeus. Pray that You'd be his help. And we pray that it would be a great blessing to Your people as we are built up. And that You would be glorified as we all are conformed more and more into the image of Christ who is the firstborn of many brethren. We look forward to the day when we will all be perfectly transformed into His image and His church shall be pure and blameless and without spot or blemish. We pray that You would hasten the day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.